I am really glad to be with you guys today. Wanted to um, start by just saying this. Um, I used to be a sports writer, some of you know. I really like sports. And every once in a while, every once in a while, in sports, uh, the unthinkable happens. And I'm not, you, I'm not sure you'll think of what I'm thinking of, because uh, it's unthinkable, that's why. <laughs> but in the midst of a competitive game where the two teams are fighting with all that they are to win, one player loses perspective and actually scores for the opposite team. Have you ever seen it? It's, it's crazy. We've got a video here. Here you go. You're watching. And in this video, Greek professional league player Jermaine Marshall and his team appear to all lose their orientation, working together to score a goal for the wrong team. <laughs> After being up, Two points, 95 to 93, with two seconds left in a playoff game. Marshall ties the game for the opposite team, leading to his team losing in overtime. And you can see the pain on the face of the players, and you see the coach, and then you'll see some of the fans too. There's the coach. Look at him. <laughs> There's the fans. There's the teammates, and there's the guy. Here it is, one more time. I think this guy might have not, oh no, I think he did know what he was doing. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, it is horrible to discover that you've been shooting at the wrong goal. That's about the worst thing that can happen. Um, and one of the best tactics of any adversary is to really um, get your opponents turned around so that they're actually helping you um, stop them. That's like one of the best things. Um, when I was in high school in Arizona, our basketball team won the state championship. They were great. A lot of them went on to college sports and we were an athletic powerhouse our high school. So for every single basketball game, all the other jocks of whom I was a very minor addition would all show up and there would be about a hundred of us in the stands and we'd all wear blue jeans and we'd wear white t-shirts, every one of us. And um, we would we'd do some fun things. Like we'd be like, uh, if a referee made a bad call, we'd be like, one, two, three. We'd all pull our t-shirts off and 100 white t-shirts would hit the referee in a moment. We usually got thrown out of the game for that one, but sometimes it was worth it. And please don't try that one at home. But the best one and the most powerful one, and it actually decided several games on the championship run, was when you would get to the very waning seconds of a game where you're ahead and the other team has the ball and they've got a score and you all together in unison start chanting the countdown. 10, it's 100 voices. Nine, eight, seven, all the way down to three, two, one. And of course, the player, the guy with the ball, he can't help, but he, he just heaves it no matter where he is. And usually he's at like three quarters of the court. And of course, actually, there's 20 seconds on the clock. <laughs> you just took 10 seconds right off their clock. It was awesome. <laughs> like we, I, we didn't feel like it was cheating. We felt like it was really accurate being a fan, you know, like so. But that's, that's your job. That's your job when you're trying to, to go after the other team. That's what enemies do. They do whatever they can do to make you do dumb things so that you can lose. That's, that's the job of an adversary, right? Chris has been leading us through the book of Ephesians, and I want to jump forward to the end of the book. He can still cover it, but I just want to take a verse from Ephesians 6, verse 2. And it's where Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So he's saying, 
this, this isn't the goal, right? Okay. He's saying, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The first thing that we can pull out of the verse is that we are in a struggle. That's really, really clear here. And I think it's easy to skip sometimes for us as we get rolling along in life. But Paul tells us that there is a dark world. Those are the words he uses that we are fighting against. And the word he uses here is the Greek word cosmos. It means three things. It means the physical earth. It means the inhabitants of the earth. But, but the way Paul is defining it here, it means the harmonious functioning and system of the world order after the fall and under the influence of Satan. And Satan, who's called the prince of this world, and who is hostile, and who now the world is hostile to God, and is continually working to separate people from God. Remember, this is the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and so where he has influence, he's influencing it to accomplish those ends. And we are in a fight, and that is our fight. That is happening every single day. It's happening constantly, and it's happening in every moment of every single day. We're living in the midst of a spiritual war that Jesus ultimately won in his dying in our place on the cross and in his resurrection. He, Jesus, is ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says that everything has been placed under his feet. So, the big question is, if that's all happened, why is there still a fight going on? You know, If he's won then shouldn't we just be partying and celebrating? Why is there still a fight? And how can we still be being seduced into going the wrong direction? And I would just um, point you guys to the Vikings who had a word, fe, it's F-E. And they used the word uh, to talk about the moment where the intensity of, of battle, where the horror of war would actually cause a soldier to go mad. And it would happen, you would hear the word berserkers, and that was a part of it too. But in World War II, when the Nazis were rebuffed in their invasion of Russia in the winter of 1941, partially by the Russians, partially by winter itself, the war was essentially over. That early, there really was no tactical way that the Germans could have won. That was four years before the end of the war. Yet the war went on for those four years because of this dynamic of fey. You see, when an adversary knows they're defeated, but the consequences of the defeat are death, torture, or capture, a sort of madness sets in where they refuse to accept their fate. They keep fighting to the bitter end. The reality, there's a rap song that I used to say to Chris when Kathy and I weren't doing well, reality used to be a friend of mine. (laughs) And that's really the nature of the enemy. It doesn't He's not thinking with a completely straight mind already by turning from the Lord, but he's certainly not thinking about quitting. And so he's fighting even though ultimately he's defeated. So Satan is defeated, but until Jesus returns, he continues to fight for the hearts and minds of the people living on earth through every element of that organized system of the world. It's, it's happening constantly. Now we live in this world where the enemy's influence is in everything, But when we believe in Jesus and invite him into our hearts, a miracle happens. We're born again and we're made a new creation. Molly was explaining this actually to the youth group last night. We pass through the waters of baptism baptism, and we're saved from this dark world and we become citizens of the kingdom of God. It is the best immigrant story ever. It is absolutely great, right? The enemy's aim 
is to keep as many people as possible from believing in Jesus, escaping this world and escaping the hell he has for them when their lives here end. With believers, his tactic is to aim to keep you from growing in faith, to keep you from growing closer to Jesus, and to keep your life as much as possible within the patterns of this world so that you won't glorify Jesus and you won't draw others to know him. He wants a world where there is no Jesus. That's the essence of the world is to, that there is no Jesus and he'll do anything he can just to obscure anybody from seeing the hope that is in Jesus. Um, while the enemy is defeated, his tactics are dangerous and deadly and he is negotiating every millisecond and every millimeter of our lives to seduce, deceive, and to diminish our lives in God. So Paul's trying to get our attention in the midst of the battle to warn us. Don't let the enemy trick you into setting your eyes on the wrong goal. Don't wrestle with the wrong opponent. Don't let the enemy direct the way you fight or you'll lose the battle. Now, if Paul's taking the time to warn us of this, it's probably because we need to be warned of this. We're in danger of being tricked into scoring on the wrong goal and fighting the wrong battle. So today, I just want to give you three quick thoughts of how we can fight and how we can love Jesus so my, I have an explosive truth at the center of this message. It's right here, and once again, I'm telling it to you so that you'll know it. I apparently don't have confidence that I could communicate it in a way where you'd be like, that's an explosive truth in the middle of the message. So here it is. We don't win this war by hating or fighting the world or the enemy. But we win this war by loving Jesus so much that we become like him in laying our lives down for those around us in the world. So you're not fighting against the world and the enemy. Not, that's not the focus. You're fighting within your own hearts and, and for the hearts of those around you. So the first point is this. When you begin to focus on the enemy and how bad things are here in this world, I think he loves it. <laughs> I think it's just great. When you're bad talking to him, he's just like, so good, so great, yeah. No, it is bad. Yeah, your country's horrible. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And one of the things that he loves about it is that it's turning our eyes to him instead of wholeheartedly worshiping Jesus, which is what we're made to do, and it's what they're made to do, and it's what the world's trying to stop. So as long as you're not wholeheartedly worshiping Jesus, the enemy's winning, okay? He's distracting us with everything that he can just from worshiping Jesus with your whole heart. So here's 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Don't love the world's ways. And this is the message. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. And these words are totally true. The world, the world is seductive, it is dangerous, and it draws us in the most effective way uh, to, yeah, it draws us in the most effective way to grab us. But to really not get captured by what it's after, your key is not to think about that, but to turn to love him with your whole heart. And so here's some verses, Psalm 62.1, David says, my soul finds rest in God alone. Some of you have heard me speak on that. I, I don't think that's the only place David looked for it, but that's the only place you find rest. That's where your heart's made to be. 
In Psalm 87, 7, the psalmist writes, as they make music, they will sing, O Jerusalem, is really the verse, all, all my fountains are found in you. Um, all their fountains are found in you. Can you imagine being able to say that? The only place that I get refreshment and consolation is him. He is my entirety. In Luke 10, 27, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Anything you do outside of worship in each moment of your life, anything you do outside of learning to practice the presence of God in each moment of your life is sin. Yeah, you're actually that much made for worship. And while worship is beautiful up here, this is one aspect of worship. Dow Robinson used to talk to us about the first word connected with worship in the Bibles is work in Genesis. And every aspect of our life is worship. We're called to love him fully. Kathy doesn't love it when I take time off of, um, of focusing on loving her. She lets me know about it. She's like, hey, hey there, come on now. Um, she'll, she'll, we'll text throughout the day we're trying to get closer and closer. And that's, that's two humans together. But we are made for every moment connection with him. Um, Jesus died for us to come close and to love and be loved by him. Life, work, family, marriage, finances, church, friends. And all of these things are settings where we can and we really must learn to worship him. To be led by him and to love him. Every single one of these spaces is a place where you can know him, know him more deeply, experience him. And then, um, you know, people will be touched even by your life as you do so. If he is any less a part of any of these parts of your life, you're facing the wrong goal and you have to turn around. Now, that's easy to say in the aggregate, but when you're caught up in a work week, there are moments where you're kind of caught up in your calendar and you're caught up in your boss's calendar a little bit more than you're caught up in, in his calendar. Um, it's hard to get that function where Jesus' Google calendar shows up on your Google calendar. Sorry for you guys who use Outlook, but um, when you're in the middle of your marriage and you're trying to do a little too much at work to make the boss happy, and so now you're overcompensating with your wife to make her happy or your husband, sometimes it's very easy to get pulled off of your mark as far as where Jesus is. It is easy to cheat and win at any of those battles. But to follow Jesus in wholehearted worship into it all working, that is what we're called to. And that's, that's what we're made for. Um, the second point of this war is the enemy's efforts to try to, to redefine what a Christian is and what a church is. He works at it constantly because he's really smart. He doesn't want anybody to be close to Jesus, but obviously church people would be the ones to focus on. Partially because... He still wants to keep you from all that you're made for, and partially because he doesn't want you to get to a point where you make a difference in other people's lives. So he does a lot of, he does a lot of things, and they're not things you would expect. His tactic is simple. He just doesn't want you to be close to Jesus. You can be a member of a church. You can take pride in your church. You can attend every meeting possible. You can memorize scripture. You can uh, not smoke, not chew, not go with the girls that do. You can be religious all you want. He just doesn't want you to live in response and relationship to Jesus. You know? Now, let's be really clear here. Church is amazing. 
What is church? Church are the people who have come to be rescued and to know, know Jesus now together. And our life in Jesus isn't an individual life. It's a corporate life. The moment that we become his, we become us. And so to diminish church it would not be at all what I would want to do here. But what we're attacking is where the enemy will diminish church into that it's a fun place, comfortable place, safe place, consumer place. It meets your needs. It's what you want. It's what you like. They're your friends. It's the way you want it with the people you want. And that is just so far away from the true call to Jesus, which is a call to discipleship. We as a church this year, we're going to focus in on discipleship. It's going to be a big focus for us. And it has been for the last few years. And this is the reason why. We're called to be disciples. We're called to make disciples. And that is how he'll build this church. You're not going to change the world as powerfully through a petition as you will by being a disciple and making disciples. And being a disciple has an edge to it. We all like to read Life Together by Bonhoeffer. But read The Cost of Discipleship. He himself thought it was a hard book. It's intense. Discipleship is racy. Discipleship is powerful. Discipleship goes beyond participation to laying everything down and following him. Discipleship will turn you upside down. What he asks of you is everything, so you will empty your arms so he can give you his everything. It's a good deal. If you're bargaining down from that, then, then it would be a mistake. Um, we're called to discipleship. And one of the parts of discipleship is that his ways are just so different from our ways. And what happens over time is we start to form church into our ways more and more, but you don't want that. We don't want that. Church is the place that helps call us up to a different way. And discipleship isn't happening once and for all. And you don't join the church and spike the ball and it's all over. The, your team gathers around you. Discipleship is constant. Uh, if we could have the elders come up here, they would each tell you that everyone, we all thought we'd be much further along than this. <laughs> and he continues to challenge us and say, today, lay your whole life down. And he continues to show you areas where where it is right now isn't where we're going. And, and it's why the Hebrews 11 and, and the group of pilgrims that are all um, never just settling, but constantly pushing forth like pioneers, that's what we're called to. It doesn't matter if you're the best worship leader, the best home group leader, the best elder, the best looking of us. It doesn't matter if what we're doing here doesn't catapult people into being true disciples of Jesus. There's just no points for anything but loving him because he loves you, all right? Um, so let me just give you a few quick points and we'll get out of here as far as some of the things that can happen to us. I'll just say this, culturally shaped, go with the flow, cowing to circumstances, Christians live beneath all God has for us. And we can become a self-help group that kind of pulls each other down to that instead of a group that provokes each other up to what it could be. And you will get a certain group of people that will come into that kind of self-care. But if you can create a place where people meet Jesus, you, you'll get more. And they'll be better. And it will be beautiful. And it won't just change a building. It'll change a neighborhood and a city. Jesus took 12 guys. One of them kind of got messed up a little bit. And they turned the world upside down. We have. <laughs> just kidding. I was going to count you. but Here's some ways that it happens to us. We focus on living full, overflowing lives. 
If we just live full, overflowing lives, we will reach and change the world. But think about the way Jesus did it. His way was to empty himself. It almost strikes us as so crazy because, of course, we want to be full and overflowing, but Jesus' model, imagine if he came full and overflowing. He would have blown people's eyebrows off, you know. But he came and he emptied himself. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself uh, he, by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. It's just so easy to all of a sudden to be kind of creating our own hallmark movie of how we're going to do it. And Jesus is like, okay, that's good. This is what I did, you know. And, um, and it's a little different, isn't it? You know, nobody's going to talk to you about that at your staff meeting. You know, your vice president or your executive director or whoever it is probably won't say that, um, as great as they are. And that's what we're for, is to help each other. We will focus on building the power to change things. That's the way that we'll do it, right? But what did Jesus do? What Jesus did is he focused on being dependent on the Father. Like, he probably could have gone and worked the political narrative at night, but instead he just goes aside to the Father and hides himself in it, walks out of crowds, just the, the focus of dependence instead of power. We focus on being attractive. <laughs> and I'm, gonna, I'm talking about you guys here because think about this, nice hair, you know who you are. Pretty faces, cool clothes, well-paneled homes. We'll win the world, we think, by pretty music, pretty words, and pretty families, right? You know. But Jesus came with nothing about his physical characteristics to draw men to himself. Isaiah 53, 2, there is no outward appearance in him nor beauty. We shall see him, yet nothing attractive about him that we should desire him. It's not to say that we don't want to be full, we don't want to be healthy, we don't want to be alive, but the way of Jesus is counterintuitive, and he takes us often down before up, and we Really, we can be talking about the right things with the right people in the right church, but still miss his ways. And that's why we're called to be disciples. Because disciple means discipline. It means cutting away. It means pruning. It means change. It means challenge. And none of us are done in that. And that's what we're called to together. Um, I'm going to wrap up with this. Is to say that the third part, the, you know, one of the reasons we get so mad at the world is the playground thing of it takes one to know one. <laughs> They're running our playbook, <laughs> which probably means we have the wrong playbook. <laughs> you know, it's like, but sometimes we're so mad at them, you know, but it's really because we know exactly what they're doing because we've become just like that, you know. Uh, we don't want to be jealous. We don't want to be power brokers. We don't want to be fighting for the top. We want to follow Jesus into the way that he lived, and it was so different, it was so different. So finally, our ultimate way to defeat the enemy and to overcome this world is by loving the people in it. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned. 
already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So much of the enemy's tactic is to misdirect your heart, weaken your prayers, and to waste your time. If he can get you distracted, finding your worth and building a beautiful life, building your company's bottom line, or trying to defeat a political party, you'll have given a portion of your heart away that is made to be the Lord's. And it doesn't mean that any of those things are wrong. It's just if you give your heart to any of those things, you've given something away that you shouldn't. We can see how fully our hearts are given over to the Lord by how much the Lord's heart directs our lives. When we turn to love him and to follow him, allowing him to disciple or discipline our lives, we will find ourselves filled with love, with stories of his grace flowing through our hearts and lives. The result will be that we join him in turning to lay down our lives to save others. His mission becomes our mission. His lifestyle becomes our lifestyle. Our job becomes a missionary outpost. Our choice of career becomes a choice of missionary strategy. Our family becomes the mission of reaching these beautiful children he's given us, but not just for soccer and homework, but to be trained up into missionary lives. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old. Our daily lives become about more than responding to our Google calendar or our spouse's concerns. We live as his disciples, listening to his daily adjustments to our lives. The basket we run towards becomes his basket, and we win. I'm going to pray a short prayer, and then the worship team will play a song. But I would just say to you, my heart gets totally nicked up in that message. Um, The world is pervasive. It's all around us, and we're called to go into the world, and we get ruffled and messed up and redirected. And that's why we need the fivefold giftings here. We need prophets who will challenge. We, we need all of the fivefold giftings in every way. That's, that's why we need to grow leaders who can flow in those things. That's why our home groups have to be places that reset us. That's why being here resets us. Worship resets us. Uh, studying the word, being discipled yourself, having a couple that walks with you, all those things. But I would say that, so everything that I just said hits me too. But our response is to turn around. And that's a word in the Bible, you know. Uh, It's a word, they call it repentance, so it's not as cool these days. But let's just say turn around. So as um, as we bow our heads and pray, and then as we worship, this is a chance for you to ask the Lord to speak to you. Where have you gotten turned around? Where has your heart wandered or gotten misdirected? And I'll be asking the same thing. Where are you dry today? Making progress towards places that Jesus isn't guiding you to go and so you're not finding the water to refresh you. There might be a few people here who have just never believed in Jesus. And if you're still over in that dark place, the good news is that he's here and he'll set you free. And it, he's, already, he's already accomplished all the hard part of it today as you're step of believing. Let's pray. Jesus, we hear what you're saying here and it's, it's a liberating world word because we don't want to be in the midst of the world and we feel it all around us and we can start beating them up when we really are probably afraid about what's happening in our own hearts. But the good news is you, Jesus, You're not asking us to figure this out. The whole message isn't about the intricacies of the world or what we've turned it into. It's not about our feelings or about our preferences. It's really just about you, Jesus. 
So this morning we have a simple task. It's just to turn to you. And so we do. Lord, this is a beautiful congregation filled with wonderful families. You will adjust us as your disciples. And that is in no way about condemnation. And this conviction, it leads us to freedom. So Jesus, we pray. I pray for each person here as they turn to you and as they speak to you. Lord, meet us and help us and carry us into a place of hope because what we're hearing today is that we're no longer a slave to sin. We're no longer a slave to fear, but we're children of God. And Lord, we pray that it be an explosive year of living like it. In Jesus' name, amen.